Um, if you've been here in recent weeks, you'll know that uh, in June and July we're trying to um, convey accurately the message of the book of Isaiah, but the book of Isaiah is 52 chapters. I remember many years ago when I was a student going to um, uh, a friend of mine, a fellow student's home church in Merthyr Tidville, and Pastor Budge was on Ezekiel 33. And two years later, when I visited again, Pastor Budge had reached Ezekiel 37. Well, I'm sure that's well-intentioned, but I'm definitely sure it's not exactly a balanced biblical diet. So we're in the um, position of, rather than spending the next three years doing Jeremiah every Sunday morning, we're aiming for um, a faithful summary of Jeremiah's teaching. We're also trying to show how the promises of hope, which are easily lost among the dominant declaration of God's judgment in that book, how those promises of hope are fulfilled in the New Testament. And that means that they're available for us in our lives today. So there's just one verse in Jeremiah that we are considering albeit it's a verse which is repeated at least seven times in the book. It's verse uh, 24 of chapter 7. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backwards and not forwards. So how can stubborn hearts be changed? What is the problem? What is the solution? So it's time to have an opportunity to get the big picture of the book once again and then to see how the Lord fulfills his promises of hope, how he identifies the problem in Jeremiah, how he issues the promises of hope which uh, he will fulfill now this little short video is from something called The Bible Project, which I've recently come across. It's cartoon in style, but it's a very accurate and succinct summary of those 52 chapters. The book of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an Israelite priest who lived and worked in Jerusalem during the final decades of the kingdom of southern Judah. He was called as a prophet to warn Israel about the severe consequences of breaking their covenant with God through their idolatry and injustice, and he even predicted that the empire of Babylon would come as God's servant to bring this judgment on Israel by destroying Jerusalem, taking the people into exile. And sadly, his words became reality. Jeremiah lived through the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and witnessed the exile personally. Now this book came into existence in a really interesting way. Chapter 36 tells us that after 20 years of Jeremiah's preaching in Jerusalem, God called him to collect all of his sermons and poems and essays and commit them to writing, which Jeremiah did by employing a scribe named Baruch, who wrote down and compiled all of this material into a scroll. Now Baruch also gathered lots of stories about Jeremiah, and he linked all the pieces together. And so this is why the book reads like an anthology, a collection of collections. It's all been arranged to present this prophet as a messenger of God's justice and grace. 
So the book begins with God calling Jeremiah to be a prophet, and he's given a dual vocation. He will be a prophet to Israel, but also to the nations. And his words will both uproot and tear down, but also plant and build up. In other words, he's going to accuse Israel and warn them of God's coming judgment, but he also has a message of hope for the future. Now this opening perfectly summarizes the first large section, chapters 1 to 24. It's a collection of Jeremiah's writings from before the exile. And the core idea here is that Israel has broken the covenant with God and violated all the terms of the agreement they made that are written in the Torah. And in a number of ways. They've adopted the worship of all kinds of Canaanite gods, building idol shrines all over the land. And Jeremiah develops the metaphor of idolatry as adultery and uses the language of prostitution, promiscuity, unfaithfulness to describe how Israel has given their allegiance to other gods. Jeremiah also repeatedly accuses Israel's leaders. The priests, the kings, the other prophets have all become corrupt. They've abandoned the Torah and the covenant, which has led to a tragic result, rampant social injustice. The most vulnerable people in Israelite communities, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, were all being taken advantage of in clear violation of the laws of the Torah. And Israel's leaders didn't even seem to care. So a classic place where all of these ideas come together is in chapter Chapter 7, it's called Jeremiah's Temple Sermon. The Israelites are coming to worship their God in the temple as if everything is just fine, but outside the temple they are worshiping other gods, and some were even adopting the horrifying Canaanite practice of child sacrifice. And so Jeremiah makes his very unpopular announcement. The God of Israel is coming in judgment. He's going to destroy his own temple and punish Israel by sending an enemy from the north. This is an army that God would allow to conquer Jerusalem and as you read on, you discover he's talking about the great empire of Babylon. And so this all leads up to a transition in chapter 25. Israel hasn't turned back to their God, and so in the first year of Babylon's new king, Nebuchadnezzar, God tells Jeremiah to announce that the Babylonian armies are headed for Israel and all of its neighbors to conquer them and take them into exile for 70 years. He compares Babylon to a cup of wine filled to the brim with God's just anger at all of Israel's injustice and idolatry, and God will make Israel and the nations drink from this cup. Now this chapter is key to the book's design because everything that follows is going to focus on Babylon's coming attack. First on Israel in chapters 26 to 45 and then on the other nations in chapters 46 to 51. The section about Israel first contains stories about how Jeremiah begged Israel to turn back, how he warned them right up to the last minute, but the leaders of Israel kept rejecting him. The section concludes with a large collection of stories about how Jerusalem was under siege and eventually destroyed by Babylon and about how Jeremiah was persecuted all through that time and eventually kidnapped and taken against his will to Egypt by a group of Israelite rebels. Now, right here in the middle, in between all of these dark stories of disaster and judgment, is a collection of Jeremiah's messages of hope for Israel's future. So he picks up on Moses' prediction that after Israel had broken the covenant and gone into exile, see Deuteronomy 30, God would not abandon his people. Rather, he would renew his covenant with them and transform their hearts. Jeremiah develops this promise, and he says that God is going to one day inscribe the laws of the Torah, not on tablets, but rather on the hearts of his own people. He's going to heal their rebellion so that they can truly one day love and follow him fully. 
And so one day, Israel will return back to the land, and the Messiah from the line of David is going to come, and that's when all nations will come to recognize Israel's God as the true God. So these chapters are showing that despite Israel's apostasy, God is not going to let Israel's sin get the final word. Rather, his own faithfulness will bring about the fulfillment of his promises no matter what. After this, we find the large collection of poems about how God is going to use Babylon to judge the nations around Israel. So Egypt, Philistia, Moab, Edom, Ammon, Damascus, Hazor. But then, surprisingly, the longest poems are saved for last, and they're about God's coming judgment on Babylon itself. So although God used this nation to execute his justice, God doesn't endorse their violence and idolatry. And so Babylon too will come under the standard of God's justice. And so Jeremiah denounces this nation's pride and injustice as well. Now, Babylon is larger than life in these poems. And it reminds us of the image of Babylon all the way back from Genesis chapter 11. Babylon has become the archetypal rebellious nation. In their glorification of wealth and war, God's going to give this nation over over to its own destruction. The book concludes with a story taken from the end of the book of 2 Kings. It tells about Babylon's final attack on Jerusalem, how they destroyed the city walls and burned the temple and took the people into exile. This story shows how Jeremiah's warnings of judgment from chapters 1 through 24 were fulfilled. But then the chapter ends with a short story about the captive Israelite king Jehoiakim. He's heir to the line of David. And the king of Babylon releases him from prison and shows him favor and invites him to eat at the royal table for the rest of his life. And that's how the book ends. So it's a little glimmer of hope. And this recalls Jeremiah's promises of hope from chapters 30 to 33. God hasn't abandoned his people or the promise of a future coming king from David's line. And so while this book contains a huge amount of warning and judgment, the final words conclude with a note of hope for the future. And that's what the book of Jeremiah is all about. Well, one of the distinctives of Jeremiah's teaching is that he had diagnosed Israel's unwillingness to repent as a deep-seated condition of the heart. But, God says, these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. And again, he says, they're all hardened rebels. In fact, all their blatant misbehavior is due, Jeremiah says, at least seven times, as I said, to the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts, 7.24. And since the heart is the source of the trouble, Jeremiah emphasizes that there is no human remedy. He says, even if the people of Judah were to scrub themselves with sodium carbonate and use large quantities of soap, the stain of their guilt would not be removed, 2.22. Only if Ethiopians can change their skin and leopards their spots will Judah be able to do good, who are accustomed to doing evil, 13.23. And again, since Judah's sin has been written with an iron pen and engraved with a diamond point, it cannot be erased, 17.1. Further, the heart, he says, is deceitful above every other thing and desperately wicked. A couple of weeks ago, just after we had the Basingstoke hustings, 
on the following Sunday, just before the general election, one of you asked me whether I was going to vote um, on Thursday. Well, actually, I think he asked me, who are you going to vote for on Thursday? And uh, I said, I'm not going to vote on Thursday. Now, that was true. But it was completely misleading. He'd have gone away thinking, Clive's not going to vote. And yet he's just spent half a sermon telling us why we should all vote. But he'd be wrong in deducing that because I would have been knowingly misleading him. I would have been guilty of deceit unless, as I then joked, I'm not voting on Thursday because I have a postal vote and I've already voted. <laughs> and he didn't press me any further. The truth needs to be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to avoid being deceitful. Well, back to Jeremiah. All four images vividly illustrate the fact that human sin is beyond human cure. It is like a stain that cannot be eradicated. It's like skin pigmentation that cannot be changed. It's like an engraving that cannot be removed. And it's like a sickness that is incurable. Only God can change us. It's true that Jeremiah did cry out, O Jerusalem, wash the evil from your heart, 4.14. But he knows they cannot do it. And so he looks forward to a day when God will establish a new covenant with them that will include his promise to write the law on their hearts. Chapter 31, verses 31 to 33. Indeed, God will give them a new heart. Jeremiah 32, 39. Why? So they will fear me, he says, for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Now this promise is wonderfully fulfilled today whenever an individual experiences the new birth. What we're going to have read to us now is that famous encounter which Jesus had with a very religious Jew of his day, Nicodemus, and Jesus' emphasis on the absolute necessity of the new birth. It's page 1065, John 3, and Pam's going to read it to us. John chapter 3, page 1065. Jesus teaches Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. 
The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell from where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you, do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Nicodemus is an outstanding example of a sincere seeker after the truth. And we would wish that there were more Nicodemuses in the world today, men and women who are prepared to lay aside apathy, prejudice and fear and seek the truth with an honest, reasonable and humble spirit. After all, Jesus promised on the Sermon on the Mount, seek and you will find. Now, Jesus must have startled Nicodemus by telling him that he must be born again. What did he mean? He obviously wasn't referring to a second physical birth, nor was he referring to some act of self-reformation. Nor can he be alluding to Christian baptism since it was not instituted until after his resurrection. It's true that baptism is a sign or a sacrament of the new birth, but we must not confuse the outward sign with the inward thing signified. Baptism is a visible public dramatization of the new birth, which in itself is an invisible and secret work of God by which he gives us a new life and a new beginning. Now what's more, Jesus said, we must be born again. The word must means it is absolutely necessary. It's the word Jesus uses on those three occasions when he says the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, and on the third day rise again. It's as emphatic as that. Without the new birth, we can neither see nor enter God's kingdom. Now Nicodemus was religious, he was moral, he was educated, respectable and courteous. And he even believed, we just heard, in the divine origin of Jesus. But all that was not enough. He still needed to be born again. So how does this new birth take place? From one point of view, it's entirely a work of God. Nobody has ever given birth to themselves. So the new birth is a birth from above, a birth of the Holy Spirit. But from our side, we have to both repent and believe. Now Nicodemus could not bypass John's baptism of repentance, which is surely what Jesus meant by being born of water. Then he must believe, putting his trust in Jesus as the Messiah 
who was the saviour that he needed. It's sadly possible to ooze into church membership, as one writer has put it, without actually that personal relationship with God. A couple once told me of their former long-term membership of a large new church where there were lots of people, but they concluded after being there for a number of years that half of them weren't actually converted. They had seeped into the church culture by osmosis rather than by the radical turnaround that comes from the new birth. You can see we can know about God without actually knowing him. The French have in some senses a richer vocabulary than us. They would use the verb connaître to express knowing an acquaintance. They use another verb, savoir, to know someone such as a spouse, someone with whom you have an intimate knowledge. Now this new birth is dramatically illustrated in a story told by Bishop John Taylor Smith, a one-time chaplain general of the British Army. He was preaching on one occasion in a large English cathedral on the necessity of this new birth. And in order to drive home the point, he said, my dear people, do not substitute anything for the new birth. You may be a member of a church, even a great church of which I am a member, the historic Church of England. But church membership is not new birth. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The dean of the cathedral was sitting on his left. And pointing at him, he said, You may be a clergyman, like my friend the Dean here, and not be born again. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Also on his left was the archdeacon in his stall. Pointing at him directly, he said, You might even be an archdeacon, like my friend in his stall, and not be born again. And except a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You might even be a bishop like myself and not be born again. And except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. A day or so later, he received a letter from the archdeacon who wrote, My dear bishop, you have found me out. I've been a clergyman for over 30 years, but I've never known anything of the joy that Christians speak of. I never could understand it. Mine has been a hard legal service. I did not know what the matter was with me, but when you pointed directly at me and said, you might even be an archdeacon and not be born again, I realised in a moment what the trouble was. I had never known anything of the new birth. He went on to say how wretched and miserable he had been. He'd been unable to sleep that night and he wrote begging for a meeting with the bishop if the bishop could spare time to talk with him. Of course I could spare time, said the bishop. And next day they got together under the word of God, and after some hours they were both on their knees, the archdeacon taking his place before God as a poor lost sinner and telling the Lord Jesus that he would trust him as his Lord and Saviour. And from that time on, everything was different. 
Now, it may not happen all in one go. We don't know what Nicodemus's response was in John 3. But by John 19, at a time when disciples like Peter had disowned Christ and others watched the crucifixion and the taking of Jesus' body down from the cross at what John says is a distance, Nicodemus, joined with Joseph of Arimathea, quite courageously to go to Pilate and to ask for Jesus' body so that they could give him a decent burial. They identified with Christ when others kept their distance. That, I think, is the evidence that Nicodemus turned to Christ and was following him come what may. Often, though, there will be a moment of realisation and then a decision to make. And then we have to ask ourselves, what are we going to do about it? Jeremiah in 29.13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now by heart, he doesn't just mean the emotional dimension to our lives. That's part of it. He's, by heart, the Hebrews meant the total package of mind, heart and will or the intellectual, emotional and volitional aspects of what constitutes us as human beings. He's there. And if you genuinely want to find and follow him, then seek for him. And with that attitude of sincerity, genuineness and humility, you will find him. He will get through to you. He's actually been working on you before you even had those thoughts. He's been simply waiting for you to realise and respond. When your attitude is right, he breaks through, and then it's down to you. Respond in repentance and faith, and a new life and a new world opens up. Now, you may have faced certain kinds of situations which are not too dissimilar from that, if you like, awakening. For example, when you just knew that the person you were with was the person that you should marry. That sense of certainty about something that seemed overwhelmingly the right thing to do may have appeared to be sudden and completely out the blue. But if you were able to pause and press kind of stall on that um, sense of emotional euphoria and to rationalise the situation, why that person was the one, you would have come to the same conclusion. And that's, you're going to ask them to marry you. And they think, why has this dimwit taken such a long time when I've made all the signals that I want him? Or it may be a moment of exposure, a case of be sure your sins will find you out. Imagine you were collecting your car from a public car park and as you reversed out of it, you scraped and dented the car next to you as you were reversing. You pause. Should you write your contact details on a piece of paper and uh, attach it to their windscreen? 
and another thought comes into your head. There's nobody around. Nobody's seen me. You convince yourself it's really only a cosmetic scratch on what's a pretty ancient car anyway. And you tell yourself, nah, and drive off. And you think that's the end of it. But somebody was watching. Somebody who not only recognised you, but knew the car you hit belonged to somebody else you might not have been aware of also goes to the same church as you. Something that you thought you got away with is brought home a couple of days later as the pair knock on your door and there's no escape. In both those situations, the realisation of love and the exposure of sin, the experience is dominant. It crowds out all other thoughts. Both are moments when you realise reality and you have to act. And so it is when the regenerating power of Christ works on your life. A gradually revealing the truth of scripture to you and showing you how the Christian faith works out best in life as you see the lives of people who are professing Christians. And you realise the truth that he wants to break into your life and form a relationship with you that will last forever. You've had the explanation to life, you've seen Christian examples of how to live, and you know at that moment that it is true, even though you have been shutting it out for a period of time. You want him to keep at a distance so that he doesn't interfere with you. And you know that you've been living a false way, trying to cover up your sin. And at that moment you realise you're being asked for a decision that you need to respond and you know that that response to Christ would need to first be repentance, to confess your sin and then belief that Christ has demonstrated his love for you so much that he was prepared on the cross to be abandoned by God so that you'd never have to be abandoned by God forever. You know, he is evidenced by his resurrection that he was God on earth and that he has a right to rule our lives. Now it may be that there might be a few people here this morning who've realised that they are in fact like that archdeacon. You've oozed into church but you not yet connected with Jesus Christ. Well, if you're like the archdeacon, I'm happy to play the role of the bishop. Give me a call or send me an email and we can arrange to meet up. It is, after all, what I'm here for. <laughs>